0: Our Bible reading this morning comes from James chapter 1 and I'll be reading verses 1 to 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that why we might be a kind of first fruits of all he has created. This is the word of our Lord.
1: Faith without deeds is dead. (laughs) At first glance, this is probably the crowning statement that the book of James is so well known for. Whilst we are not saved by our good deeds, authentic faith, that is, faith that is real, will result in good deeds. Today, starting with chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, we are embarking on a 10 week series studying the book or letter of James. James is five chapters in length, and so essentially each week we'll be covering half a chapter. We'll dig deep down into the word and spend ample time in in each chapter uh, and each half of the chapter each week. For James, faith was no abstract proposition but had effects in the real world. James offers throughout his letter numerous examples to illustrate his point. Faith endures in the midst of trials. Faith calls out to God for wisdom. Faith learns to tame the tongue. Faith sets aside wrongdoing. Faith cares for and visits orphans and widows. Faith does not play (laughs) favourites. James leaves absolutely no stone unturned to stress that the life of faith is comprehensive, impacting every aspect of our lives and driving us, To truly engage in the lives of others. Chapter one, in its entirety, of which we're only looking at half of today, reads a little bit like a contents page for the rest of the book. All the various themes that will be discussed in the remaining four chapters are briefly touched on in chapter one. James is a straight shooter. He is deeply interested in the moral application of the Lordship of Christ in concrete, everyday terms. You say Jesus is your Lord, how does that actually play out in your life every day? James is concerned with practical Christianity, which is why this this letter is a favourite of many Christians, because of its practical nature. Chuck Swindoll remarks, the book of James looks a bit like the Old Testament book of Proverbs dressed up in New Testament clothes. Its consistent focus on practical action in the life of faith is reminiscent of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, encouraging God's people to act like God's people. If faith is real... It must work. It must, have, it must make an obvious difference to the way we approach life in all of its beauty and challenge and complexity. And indeed, it certainly has to impact on the way we relate to other people. James's emphasis is not on doctrine or belief, It's on the way that that right belief impacts the way we live. James assumes that we already have the right doctrine or the right belief. He assumes that of his readership. He's interested in how that belief is playing out in a person's life. And if it doesn't play out in a person's life, then James simply asks the question, what's the use? Two things have dominated my week cycling and studying James. Uh, The tour is on and this time of year you will find me up late of an evening uh, perched in front of the TV being inspired and then in turn you might find me waking up early and getting out on the roads on my bike. And I've been thinking about my bike this week and in fact I was thinking of bringing it but I thought it would just be too much of a distraction But I thought about this beautiful bike, which I love and I enjoy so much, and how easy it is for me to watch cycling on the TV and to even look and admire my bike. But unless I put my helmet and my shoes on and get on the thing and ride it, I'm not a cyclist. And I think James is kind of wanting to say the same thing. You might watch, you might look at, you might read and and learn about what it is To be a Christian, you have the belief, but I want to see you get on that bike and go for a ride. Show me you're a cyclist. Show me you're a believer by how you live your life. Not just what's in your mind, but what's the, the fruit that results from what is in your mind is what I'm interested in. So let's jump into today's passage. Verse 1 is important as it highlights both the author and the author's intended audience. When we study the Word, it's so important for us to understand, who was this written to? Why was it written to these people? What did it mean to them then? What, in turn, may it mean for us Now? So verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. This circular letter is written to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. This is essentially a reference to the scattered community of Jewish Christians. Although they didn't refer to themselves as Christians, they were simply members of Israel who had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. Another term would be Messianic Jews. Who was James and what does the Bible say about him? If you do a a word search and a bit of a study, you'll learn quite a lot about James. James did not specifically identify himself as to which James he was. But it is widely accepted and thought that James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the author of this letter we're looking at. In Mark 6.3, we learn that Jesus had, in fact, four brothers and at least two sisters, maybe more. It's just a plural for the sisters. John 7.5 highlights that James, and indeed all his brothers, were unbelievers. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Can you imagine having Jesus as a brother? and an older brother at that. Jesus is the Son of God. He's perfect. He would have been every mum and dad's dream child. If it follows that Jesus is perfect, then he would have been so obedient and did everything his mother asked him to do. Now, you know, you might have to cast your memory back for some of you, but if you have an older sibling then you may have found yourself constantly being referred to as so-and-so's younger brother or sister. And so I'm thinking about James, and he rocks up to school. Ah, you're Jesus' brother. Oh, you're Jesus' brother? I wonder if James lived in the shadow, and indeed the other siblings of Jesus, lived somewhat in the shadow of their perfect elder brother. And when we think about that, I think we need to cut them some slack when we understand that none of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, we don't read of an angel turning up and telling the siblings that this was the Son of God and that they were to put their faith and trust in him to the siblings Jesus was simply that he was their brother And one thing that we need to keep in mind throughout this letter is that James is written from the perspective of a skeptic Because for so many years James didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah Jesus was simply James's brother And so I think when James comes to write this letter, he has first-hand knowledge of how a sceptic thinks. (laughs) And at times we will find it confronting. But like it or not, I think James is subtly saying, this is how people think. The concern for verses 2 to 4 is the development of one's character. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Trials are common experience of all humanity. We all face trials. Even Jesus himself faced trials. Whilst we all face trials, however, it's how we respond to them that James is concerned with. And without question, he sees trials as character-building opportunities that we are to embrace rather than flee from. The theme of trials mentioned in verse 2 reappears at least twice more in his letter in chapters 2 and chapters 5. Now, we don't know the exact details of the trials that the original readers faced. It was a circular readership, so people were scattered. But we pick up a hint in chapter 2 where we read, "'Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? "'Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? "'Are they not the ones who are blaspheming "'the noble name of him to whom you belong?' we see here that financial, legal and religious troubles are hinted at. Whatever the details are of the trials that the original hearers faced, James wants them to see trials as pure joy. How so? Well, it all has to do with our perspective, how we see things, Experiencing trials that test our faith are opportunities to develop perseverance. And James wants us to have a broad perspective, a wide view lens, if you will, when it comes to trials. Because trials are part and parcel along the journey towards being made whole, mature, and complete. And is that not the end goal for the believer? To be made mature, whole and complete in Christ. Now I want to pause here and just clarify that James is specifically referring to trials that test our faith. We all face trials of varying degrees and some are just part of the ebb and flow of life and may not have a direct or indirect impact on our faith one way or the other. We are, however, to consider trials that test our faith as pure joy because our faith can be stretched and when our faith gets stretched like a muscle, it grows and when our faith grows, that is something to be celebrated. In Luke 6.22, Jesus calls us blessed when we are persecuted for the sake of the kingdom. That's from the Sermon on the Mount. And I wonder if James had that statement in mind as he penned this letter. When we do face a trial of some kind that puts our faith to the test, the question we are are faced with is how much do we value maturity in Christ? Is maturing in Christ our highest value? Or is comfort and success a higher value. You see, what we value higher is going to dictate how we respond to the trial. If we value maturity in Christ above all, then we'll learn to have the perspective that James promotes. See it as joy. See it as an opportunity to grow. Press in. Don't flee. Let's keep moving on. is wisdom, clarity about how to walk according to God's ways in God's world. What is wisdom? Well, in modern terms, wisdom often means something along the lines of intelligence or insight. It's an intellectual term. In the Bible, however, wisdom has just as much to do with behaviour as with a person's mind. I'll never forget a helpful explanation of wisdom from one of my young adult leaders. It's Mark Beresford, Katie's husband, that some of you might remember. He said this, Wisdom is knowledge applied. It is therefore a combination of knowledge and application. We tend to equate old age with wisdom If you are old, then you are supposedly wise. Now, let me preface this by saying that there are many elderly people, especially in this church and in many others, who are indeed wise. Your life experience has taught you lessons that you've put into practice. You've learnt things the hard way and it's taught you lessons that you've actually changed certain attitudes or behaviours because of. However... There are plenty of unwise and immature elderly people. Just as there are wise and mature young people. The key is applying the knowledge that one has. Just because you have knowledge does not make you wise. Do you apply the knowledge that you have? That is biblical wisdom. How do we get wisdom? James says, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. How do we get wisdom? We pray. Yes, wisdom absolutely can come from age and experience, but that's not what James teaches. According to James, wisdom comes from God. It is a gift that we receive from God when we ask in faith, not wavering in double-mindedness. We are to ask for wisdom in faith and we are to receive wisdom in faith. It is a gift. If we are to view trials and testing as pure joy, then we are going to need the mind of God to understand the bigger picture of how these so-called trials that are testing our faith, in the end, are for our good. And we consider them pure joy. We need to seek his wisdom. James now turns to questions of poverty and wealth within the Christian community. During the time when this letter was written, There was no such thing as middle class. There was the rich and there was the poor. And about 90% of the population of the Roman Empire lived at or below what we would consider in modern terms as below the poverty line. So for the majority, not all, but for the majority, I would say of the readers, they are poor. So hear these words into that context. Verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossoms, Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. This is a classic upside-down approach, something the Bible is very good at. Economics in God's kingdom are vastly different to that of the world. The less money, status, and earthly security you have, the more you will need to learn to rely on God. And if you have to rely more on God, you're blessed. (laughs) The danger of wealth and status and earthly comforts, as we would know many of us firsthand, is that we can tend to rely more on our stuff than on God. Our consuming can consume us if we're not careful. One commentator helpfully wrote this about the section we're looking at. Regardless of our status in life, we must view our circumstances theologically in terms of God's creation and redemption of us, not socially in terms of our wealth or poverty. Verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James is urging believers to understand that the Christian life must be lived in the light not of the present, but of the future. Just like an athlete experiences pain during a race or a woman giving birth experiences great pain during labour, keeping their eye on the end game helps them persevere. It keeps them going. And James wants us to stay fixed on the end game, which is the crown of life, everlasting life in Jesus, promised to all who love him. If we keep our eyes fixed on the end price, our perspective will change. Drawing this section to a close, James wants to reinforce that the Christian life is not based on our imperfect attempts at obedience, but indeed on God's good gift, character and word. Far from sending temptations mentioned in verses 13 and 15, God in fact sends good and perfect gifts. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Experiencing rebirth, that is, spiritual birth, from hearing the word of truth, we receive the most perfect gift, salvation. Salvation is not a result of anything we have done It is grounded in the immovable, unchanging character of God. It is a free gift to all who repent and believe. Because Jesus died and rose again, nailing our sin to the cross, just like with wisdom, we can ask God in faith and have full confidence that Jesus will receive us unto himself welcoming us into the family of God. No matter how strong James's insistence is on good works, and it is pretty strong, his starting point is grace. Our spiritual birth is a gift brought about by God's word. If you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, You're in good company with James, because neither had he for some time. My prayer for you is that you will come to know, understand, and receive God's good and perfect gift of salvation that is available for you today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much this morning for this letter that your brother wrote to Christians who were scattered amongst sceptical unbelievers and had a deep concern that their lives looked different. And Lord, we too are your brothers and sisters. And for most of the time as a body, we are scattered amongst sceptical people who do not know you as Lord and Saviour. As we study this book of James, I pray that you would convict us I pray that your word would go deep into our minds and our hearts and we pray, God, that you would give each of us wisdom to apply the knowledge that we receive. May our lives be remarkably different and may our lives glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and may others come to know you as a result. We love you and we thank you for your word. Amen.